I interviewed Jason Berg, Executive Director of Educational Services for the Farmington Area Public Schools. Farmington's a community of over 20,000 people as of the 2010 census, although at one time a rural community, because of growth, it is now considered to be a southern suburb of Minneapolis and St. Paul. The mission of the Farmington Schools is to ensure that each student reaches his or her highest aspirations while embracing responsibility to community. In this community of 33,000 people, 7,000 children are students in the Farmington area public schools. The district has more than 400 teachers, roughly 110 are at the high school. Jason Berg recently became Executive Director of Educational Services for the district. Prior to that, he had been principal of the high school. I interviewed him to learn about the changes they've made at the high school, how they've used their strategic plan, and the process of change that they utilized. As you will hear from Jason, he is very excited and proud of the things that are happening in the Farmington District. Before we began the interview, Jason showed me around the high school where there are different types of learning spaces. Old locker bays that no one uses anymore have been morphed into learning spaces where students can work alone or with others. The daily schedule is comprised of trimesters while the school day is divided into five periods of around 60 minutes with academic support times built in before the first class and after the fifth so students can receive additional help and support from teachers. They can ask for help or be assigned. You will hear how teachers can use flexibility to make decisions about how the classroom instruction will look, whether it's in a whole class presentation or with a teacher working with small groups or individuals, depending on the needs of the students and the best delivery system of the content. Overall, several themes emerge from our conversations. Flexibility, responsibility, and giving up control are three major ones that you will hear. We started by talking about the purpose of high school. Well, I think the, the purpose of high schools are to prepare kids for an unknown future. I think when our education system was developed in the late 1800s, Carnegie and Ford and all those people knew exactly what they were preparing kids for. The unfortunate thing is, is that our society and our economic system has changed significantly and our system hasn't. And one of the fatal flaws in my mind is we keep thinking we know what the future is going Going to be. And if we think we know what the future is going to be, we, we try to identify these discrete things that kids need to know and be able to do. And that's a disservice to our kids. I think there are certain things that all kids need to be able to do. Kids need access to whatever content is valuable to them. Or if we do a really good job of supporting them and developing them a, a, some sort of post-secondary plan and allow them to be engaged in those discussions to figure out what sort of content they need. And then there's these other skills that kind of permeate our way of life that kids need to practice. Like our job, first and foremost, is to prepare kids for that unknown future and to give kids opportunities to practice all of those things, to practice their content that they need and to practice those skills that they need so that, you know, when they leave and whether they go right into the workforce or they go into the military, or they go to a two-year, four-year certificate program, that they're ready for that and had an opportunity to practice those things. They really need to be able to handle failing, not failure, but failing. There's a quote out there, and I'm not sure who the quote is, but I think it's it's right on. The, the illiterate of our 21st century isn't going to be those that can't read or write. It's those going to be those that can't learn, unlearn, and relearn because that is what it's going to take to be a successful contributing member of our society. 
How do teachers interact with the strategic plan to teach and prepare students for this unknown future? It's really been about empowering our staff to meet the needs of our students so that our students can you know, see themselves or find their inner strengths. Or another way we talk about it is we want all of our students to be in the top 10% of something. And so we need to build that within our students. And so if that's the overarching strategic direction that we're working in that changes your work a little bit and we've talked a lot with our our content teachers that you know everybody needs to take chemistry but not everybody needs chemistry so your chemistry class better be more be about more than just chemistry otherwise you're not going to engage all your kids and our kids our teachers have really taken that on that's caused them to look at their instruction differently that's caused them to look at other opportunities in their classes and stuff differently and because we've allowed our teachers to make those decisions again it becomes their work they own it they're excited about it i think we all went into education to really connect strongly with kids and get kids excited about learning. It may not be the learning that we want them to take in, but there's a glow and an excitement when a student gets you know, passionate about learning something. You have a written document which can be found on your website. However, what I hear you say is that you use yours differently. We never pull out the written document, but we refer to the strategic plan all the time. I mean, it's 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 our why. And I think what we figured out through this process is, in our minds, one of the downfalls of education is we've always looked at scaling out the what and how. But the what and how doesn't work in every situation. If you scale out and you're very clear about the why and for us our strategic direction is the why the what and how can look lots of different ways as long as they connect back to it so when we talk to families when we talk to staff when we talk to students in some way shape or form we refer back to our strategic plan which is our why now it may sound different it may look different but that why is our driving force I've been in this district a couple different times we've always had a mission statement well it was just a piece of paper you have to bring it to life and I think you bring it to life through the communication and then empowering people and giving people multiple entry points based off their strengths and passions to connect to the strategic plan and not telling people this is specifically how you do it. This is what we want to do based on what you're really good at, based on what you're really passionate about. How can you support that work? And I think that's way more empowering for people to say that this is a worthy thing to go after and I want to go after it like this. Many strategic plans list specific measurable goals so the organization can judge whether or not progress is being made. In your strategic plan on your website, you do not have these measurable goals. Can you talk about that? We're not going to let the idea of measurement get in the way of that. So I think after doing it for six or seven years, I think we are starting to say, okay, here's what we think some indicators are. How can we look at those indicators? And and I think the other part with education, we've always got stuck up, stuck on, we have all this data. Let's try to make meaning of the data instead of saying, well, what's meaningful? Let's look for meaningful data. The other part with that is, is we've always looked at things we can measure. Well, learning is a human component. And so you can't always measure those. Now, let's start to think, well, is there things that are demonstrable? 
but how are we going to go and quantify that? And are there things that are observable? And so we're trying to figure out ways to grab that at a district level because in a, in a, in a classroom, teachers can quantify that fairly easily because they have a small group of kids, but those, those larger groups of kids are a little harder. And so I think that's a long way to answer that. We haven't let the fact that we don't know how to measure it necessarily stop us from doing things. Because I think that's really easy to do. And, I, and the other thing for us is we, even though we live in the current system, what we'd really like to do is transform the system and create a new system. Now, that's a big way of thinking of things. And we have to work with the Minnesota Department of Ed and all that other stuff. You're, you're not able to do that. So we live in two worlds. And one of the downfalls of that is the old system. You don't want to use old measures of new things. And so we've been really um, intentional with our staff and, and with our community saying that um, we, we know this is the right work and we are going to figure out how to quantify that, but we got to do the work first. What role do tests such as MCAs and ACTs play in your gathering information about what has been learned? Fairly high number of people opt out, you know, especially at, at certain levels. Like at the high school, you know, if kids are taking AP tests, those are much more important to them than the MCA scores. We give all our, our 11th graders the ACT. That's much more important to them than the MCA scores. And so, you know, if you're 11th grader and you're taking AP tests and you're taking an ACT, you, you don't want to be bothered with, with the MCA and they opt out. And we are, we're, we're transparent with our families. We, we talk to families about the information that the MCAs can give, but we also talk to them about the information they can get from other assessments, whether it's the DRA in the elementary schools, whether it's the NWA, whether it is the pre-ACT. I mean, we, we talk about all of those things. Yes, that data gives us some information about our system, which is important to get, but really the data is important to that student. So, I mean, if I'm a student that's deciding that I'm going to go in the military, one of the most important pieces of data for you is the ASVAB. For you to focus and, and prepare for that is an important piece from you. So we can understand why you may not want to take the MCA. We're still trying to figure out, you know, what are those important indicators and data for our system? I mean, it's, that's a tough question. But again, we haven't not done anything because we can't measure it. Talk about the change process you've gone through. You talk a lot about responsibility and flexibility for teachers and students. So how did that come about and what have you learned in this process? We didn't have a one-to-one -one initiative, but the technology allows you to start to think about your time and space and instruction differently. Our expectation has never been that our iPads are used in every classroom equally. It did allow us to start to think about things differently. Now, we did have teachers that were early adopters, and so they could start to mess around with some of their instructional practices and things like that. So our early adopters were kind of um, some big people for us to kind of play in the sandbox a little bit and get some ideas of things. And then for us, it was really getting people to start to think about using their time and space differently. And we just started asking, what's the best use of student teacher time? Okay, because you only have so much time with your kids. Is it lecturing to all 35 kids at the same time? It might be, you know, but is that right for every class? And, and so as we asked um, teachers to do that, we asked questions about how can you best serve all the students in your class? Can the technology support that? And so as people messed around with that, they found ways to better support all of their kids. We started seeing things like this idea of teaching on demand. You know, how can I be available to teach on demand? So when a student needs support, I can give them support on the area that they need support. You know, our academic support 
allows us to do that. You know, utilizing the technology allows us to do that. And then I think, again, as administrators, just asking questions. You know, not really telling people what to do, but, you know, asking questions about, well, why are you using this resource? What is it that you want students to be able to do at the the end of this? How can you better able kids to access those sorts of things? And I think there's a power in, again, turning over to the practitioners, the people that are doing it on a daily basis. And so as we kind of formulated some of the executive skills that we wanted kids to have, like we believe that all kids should advocate for themselves. Okay, When you leave Farmington High School and the Farmington Area Schools, if you can't advocate for yourself, then we failed you. We believe that all kids should be able to manage their workflow along with getting that content and in talking to our staff and looking at their instruction we also wanted not only the content pieces but we wanted those elements in as well can you structure your class differently so kids have practiced doing those things those conversations gave people an opportunity to look at things differently and then really freeing people up there's this common notion especially in secondary buildings that kids have to be somewhere every time and so when we started go through and do our administrative walkthroughs and you'd, you'd see, you know, we use the gradual release of responsibility as our instructional framework. So you see the, the, the direct instruction, which every, you still need direct instruction. They can lock, look lots of different ways, but, you know, you'd see direct instruction, you'd see guided practice, you'd see independent practice, okay? Well, our question was when we started doing our walkthroughs early on is why do kids have to be in the classroom during independent practice? If they can independently work on it, why can't they do that anywhere? And so we freed up our teachers to start to say, well, during an independent practice time, if you've met certain criteria, you can go work flexibly throughout the building. The other part of that is then it built some time in for teachers to hold back other students that may have been behind, needed to make something up, and so you start to build these little RTI times, which are difficult to do in a secondary building because you have your bell schedules and things like that. What did we see? We saw kids getting stuff done because they wanted that time. And so then we moved to the to a little larger step with that of, of just saying, okay, for your class that day, you have complete autonomy of your class. So if you if you need to meet with kids individually because that's the best thing you do to give feedback on a piece of writing, then set up meetings during that time and then create opportunities for your kids to work independently. And they can do that throughout the building. And so we just really started to get people to think differently, which led us to look at our schedule differently and so built in academic support periods, which are very similar to um, office hours that we have those bookend our day. And you know kids can choose to go meet with a teacher during that time, which is really what we want them to do to make the choice of, I need help, I'm going to go find help. The teachers can help students make that decision, either by creating a plan with them or saying, I need to see you. Administration can devise a plan with a student that lays out exactly where they're supposed to be and when they'll be there. And then obviously your ninth graders need more help and we can assign those kids to those times too. And just through that process of going through that is, is help people move. And I think for us, we've always looked for reasons to say yes in education. You know, we've always looked for reasons to say no because we were worried about like the other 10% of the other 5%. If we say yes to this, what about those 5%? And we've never said, well, we'll just deal with those 5%. If this is good for 95%, they're going to be fine with it. And we've kind of flipped it and said that, you know, with our professional development, with how we deal with our students, all sorts of stuff like that. We've looked for reasons to say yes, and it's been a really good thing. 
What have you done to support teachers in their professional development? So we had a lot of our academic stuff in order. We had our learning targets, a lot of common formative assessments, you know, the big things that we wanted out of each class. So we had a lot of that work going into kind of our, our work towards personalized learning. So that made that transition really easy. When we started to move towards some of the work we're doing now, we still have, we call it collaboration time now, we still have that built into our day once a week. We've opened up for that collaboration be a little more global and not necessarily on the four to fours questions because people are in different places and they will still talk about students but they'll also talk about instruction they'll talk about lesson design some of those things that you traditionally wouldn't talk about in a PLC so we've built time for people to talk about share ideas and let those ideas bake you know hey I really want to try this with my class what do you guys think and what we've asked people to do is when they want to try something different to try to be on the same page as their collaborative group so they know what's going on and so that there's not this diverse experience for kids in U.S. history. We want it to be very similar because they're going to change change teachers at trimesters anyways. And then basically, early on, we spent all our professional development time during the summer and giving people time to work. I quit sending people to conferences mainly because the conferences really weren't beneficial anymore because people have gone beyond some of that sort of stuff. And then then as people have said, um, okay, now that we've changed our instructional practices, our grading doesn't make sense. We want to look at grading. And so then we've gone out and looked for professional help around that. We've we've worked with a group out east called KnowledgeWorks who's been really good for us around design thinking, which is kind of help with our project-based learning. We've done some work with Buck Institute, but it hasn't been bringing Buck and everybody's going to get project-based learning. It's like when people are ready and say that I want to try this, then we give them the professional development based on their need. And we, we just had a big group in, about 30 teachers around competency-based learning. And because of the instructional changes that they've made and the work that they're seeing from the kids and things like that, this makes sense for them. And so now they've chosen to be part of that professional development. The other thing is, is um, we don't necessarily do traditional um, staff development during the school year. We still do some whole group things that everybody needs to know. But we've also opened that up where people are creating their own professional development plans based on their needs. And then we also flex people eight hours. We'll take one of our professional development days, people won't come in that day, and then throughout the school year, they need to log eight hours of professional development. And for some people, that's doing Twitter chat sessions. For other people, it's investigating things on YouTube, or it's connecting, or it's going out visiting other schools. But if we want our teachers to have kind of a personalized learning mindset and meeting kids where they're at, then we have got to model that for our teachers. And it's been a big thing too that for early on it was hard for teachers well, what do you mean I, I'm in charge of my own professional development I mean what does that look like well what do you want to learn and so we'd had to walk them through that process so they kind of understand what it feels like and so then you know hopefully they can translate that for their students as well so where do you want to be five years from now or maybe even a year from now that's a good question. I don't know if we know where we want to be in five years. I mean, I, I think... How about next year? Well, I, you know, the big things for us next year, and if teachers are interested in looking at a schedule change, we have a group working specifically at the Flex Mod because that gives us more flexibility. It allows us to do what we're doing now, but maybe do it better. And they're in the process of, of really digging into what that could look like for the high school. And then we want to give our kids more opportunities to kind of meet our quote-unquote graduation 
registration requirements. And we are going to open, for lack of a better term, a project-based learning academy within our school where kids can have a choice to do that for part of their day or all of that day and, and really dig into hands-on competency-based learning for a majority of their day. Why don't we see more changes in more schools? What's the obstacle? I think mindset is the biggest obstacle. There's, there's very few other systems in our society that have stayed the exact same. Um, because of this, the, the system's been around for so long, I think it's hard for people to, and even people in the system, imagine what it can be like differently. And I think to one of your earlier questions, I think one of the successful things that we do is we've gotten people to to do and try some things. And like anything, when you do and try, you're going to make some mistakes and things aren't going to go well, but that's where you can learn. You can start to have discussions about what did you take from that? What did you learn from that? What went well from that that we want to try to replicate and do again? And then what didn't go well and why didn't that go well? And if you were to redo this again, how would you change that? And I know sometimes from a district standpoint, we want all of this to take place at one time. If you set the conditions and you get people to look at practices and think about things differently and then do something, that's how you get things to change. Change is about creating a risk-safe culture where practitioners have flexibility, responsibility, ownership, and support. Change does not have to look the same in all schools. And change begins with one step. Thanks, Jason, for taking time to share with us. Again, my favorite philosopher, Dr. Seuss, has some closing words. Oh, the things you can find if you don't stay behind. This is Jane Sigford signing off. My email is jlsigford at comcast.net. Thanks for listening.